Our scripture today is found in Luke 6, 17 through 26. Please read along with me. Then he came down with them and stood on a level place, and a large number of his disciples had gathered along with a vast multitude from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon. They came to hear him and to help and to be healed of their diseases. And those who suffered from unclean spirits were cured. The whole crowd was trying to touch him because power was coming out from him and healing them all. Then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for the kingdom of God belongs to you. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and insult you, and reject you as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and jump for joy, because your reward is great in heaven. For their ancestors did the same things to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort already. Woe to you who are well satisfied with food now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for their ancestors did the same things to the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. And Lord, this is, uh, for some, this has been a very difficult week. We think of the Williamsons who buried Tracy's brother on Thursday. For those that uh, have loved ones who are in critical condition, we lift up Vicki Waterman's mother. Those who've walked through surgery or who are facing surgeries this coming weeks, Lord, we, we have much to... Uh, strip our minds of the focus here. And so, Father, we just ask that you would help us to look to you uh, this morning, clear our minds to what you would have from your word. Thank you for our Savior, Jesus. Thank you for the glorious gift that you have given us. And thank you for the word in which we can learn more about him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you would, turn to Luke chapter 6, the text that was just read. We have been journeying through this book, and if you're your first time with us this morning, I saw some new faces. Welcome. Glad that you're here. It's hard to tell behind those masks, but I think some of you are new, so we're glad you're here. In chapter 5, all the way through 615, Luke is introducing us to this Jesus and, and what is expected for those who will respond. And the line of the sand has been drawn, and we saw the mention of the Pharisees for the first time, this group, boo, hiss, that uh, are not going to respond to Jesus. In fact, they become very hostile to the things of the Lord. And then you have another group who've responded, disciples. And we come to this scene here in chapter 6, verse 17, which is, contains undoubtedly some of the most famous passages, some of the most loved of what Jesus taught. I remember doing the Sermon on the Mount at 
the sermon, or at the Mount of Beatitudes there on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, and our Israeli guide, who I know well, who's agnostic at best, stated, uh, I, I love these words from Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. This in Luke's gospel is sometimes referred to as the Sermon on the Plain, because the text tells us, if you see, they gathered together, it says in verse 17, on a level place. And scholars debate, is this the same as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7? And there is some dif differences, etc. I'm going to argue they most likely are the same sermon. Luke has pulled, teased obviously just some of what Jesus stated for the purpose of his narrative. Some of the statements found in Matthew 5 through 7 are peppered later in Luke's gospel. But regardless, I think there's, there's much here that's connected. And in the short sermon that Luke records, one Lucan scholar states, the sermon is a call to love all humanity in the face of the reality of God's blessing, justice, and character. What's very problematic with the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain is what do you do with this theologically? And scholars have debated, and we don't have the luxury to go into that this morning, but some have argued this is simply kingdom ethics. This is what we're to do in the millennium, uh, this loving your neighbor and blah, blah, blah. So it's, it's not something necessarily for today. Others argue, no, 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 this is an ethical standard for all believers. And others would argue it's an ethical standard that is unattainable and reminds us of our depravity. I think the secret in understanding these two sermons, or one sermon, that is the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain here in Luke, is found in Matthew chapter 5. And if you would turn there, I want you to see this. In Matthew 5, I, I know we're in Luke, just bear with me here. When you study the Gospels, if there are parallel counts, you always want to look at those because it helps shed light on the Gospel that you are studying. In Matthew chapter 5, you have a series of blesseds. Blessed are those who mourn, those who are meek, those who are hungry. And then Jesus goes into the salt and light. But he, says, he makes a statement in 520 that I think is key in understanding these sermons. He says in 520, for I tell you, unless your righteousness goes beyond that of the experts in the law and the Pharisees. Now remember, when we hear the term Pharisees, we go boo. But if you're in the first century, Pharisees are greatly loved. They are the devout ones. They are the seen as the ones who have it all together. And their power base is the popular vote. That's why Jesus is such a threat. And notice what Jesus states, unless your righteousness exceeds the law and the experts in the law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, there's no way. That's a, that, that should be their immediate response. There, there is no way I can be as devout as them. I've already blown it, number one. Number two, I mean, uh, they, they cross every T dot, every I. There, there's no way I could do that. And so you hear that, and as I mentioned to my friend Avi, who says this is a beautiful passage, Matthew 5 through 7 and Luke chapter 6, I said, actually, it should be very troubling. Because there is no way we can obtain that righteousness. 
apart from 2 Corinthians 5. Now turn to 2 Corinthians 5. We will get to Luke, I promise. Just bear with me. But in 2 Corinthians 5, because this sets up our understanding of this whole scene. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, I think it's one of the most important verses in all of the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes, God made them one who did not know sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we would become what? The righteousness of God. Apart from a transformation of the Holy Spirit in the life of someone who submits to Jesus, there is no way your righteousness will exceed the Pharisees. But this is how you can far exceed any Pharisee because it's a heart change is what we're looking at. The Old Testament alluded to this. Isaiah chapter 61, Romans 8. And so, turn to Luke. Now we're in Luke. Back to 6, 17. As we've seen the line drawn in the sand of, of what are you going to do with Jesus? We get to here and it's the first time in Luke's gospel that Jesus' rhetoric is directed solely to his disciples and those that are following. He says, okay, those that God is going to transform, a transform heart, this is what is expected. The work of the spirit and the life of the believer. Note in this intro in verses 17 through 19, we have the where, north side of the Sea of Galilee, a level place. We have the who, right? It tells us that disciples as well as a vast multitude. And if you look at Judea, Jerusalem, the seacoast, I mean, in other words, they're coming from all over. Not just the Jewish quarter. Down in Jerusalem, the holy ploy, the, uh, the frozen chosen. But they're coming, Jews coming, and maybe Gentiles coming from Tyre and Sidon all over. And why? The text tells us. They come to hear him. And they've come to be healed, right? Uh, physical ailments as well as exorcisms seen. And so the whole crowd, verse 19, have sought to touch him because power was coming out of him. That phrase in Luke's writings refers to the role of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit coming out. The first segment, and, and this is going to be, a, we'll spend a couple Sundays looking at this, this sermon on the plain. The first segment deals with these four blessings and these four woes. And, and don't think we're dealing, for instance, with the four blesseds, that we're dealing with four different groups of people. It's actually one. And that will be true of the woes. It, it, it's, it's characteristics of a particular group. The term blessed, sometimes translated as happy, conveys a, a sense of well-being, in the Old Testament and in Jewish literature, it refers to those who've placed their confidence in God. And so, notice what he says in verse 20. He looks up at his disciples, and Jesus states to the first blessed, he says, Blessed are you who are poor, for the kingdom of God belongs to you. The poor in Judaism referred to the one who has a desperate need whose helplessness drives them to a dependent relationship on the Lord. We have to be careful when we read this to confine our interpretation to solely economic issues. When I think poor, I think, oh, you know, they're in a particular tax bracket. Not so in, in Jewish literature, etc., in intertestament Jewish literature. The poor has far more meaning than that. <clears throat> 
And in fact, I mentioned here, often the nation was seen as poor. Why? Because they were needy. They were dependent on God to deliver. And so they're poor because they are oppressed. They're poor because they're in need. And that's the idea that's being brought forth here, I believe. The Lord is not glorifying poverty. I've seen writings that say we need to sell all that we have. And no, 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 no. I mean, Jesus wore a seamless robe. Be like driving around in a Bentley. All right. So no, 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 no. Uh, He's not glorifying poverty, nor is he calling everyone to make themselves poor. Rather, what I would argue is that Jesus is stressing that God's deliverance is for those who come to the Lord with empty hands. They understand they are in need. There's no way I could purchase a ticket into the kingdom of heaven. There's, there's no way I can obtain through investments stock into heaven. Right? It, it can't be done. What, what do we bring to an almighty God? And throughout scripture, it's the poor who, remember Mary's the Magnificat we looked at earlier in Luke? That God visits those who are poor and humble. They go together. And by the way, as we look at these four woes, you'll see the contrast when we get to the woes. I mean, the four blesseds, because the contrast to the woes, the very first one in verse 24 is, woe to you who are rich. So we're going to get to that. So just bear with me. But the first of these is he mentions there are poor, and he states in the second, who are hungry, and notice this, now. He mentions this as well with those who weep, now. The poor and hungry are often referred to as gather. One scholar states the hungry are men and women who are outwardly and inwardly painfully deficient in the things essential to life. Those who, who lack both physical and spiritual well-being. Psalm 107 states that it's the Lord who satisfies the thirsty and the hungry. He fills them up with food. No, he says he fills them up with good things. So it's seen as is, is a, a symbolic of, of something far greater. Isaiah 65, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. My servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. My servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. So blessed are those who are poor, blessed are those who hunger, and then he states, blessed are those who weep. And again, throughout the Old Testament, weeping was associated with suffering from injustices, right? Instead of the pain from suffering, their agony will be turned to joy. I love this. He says, you weep now, but you're going to laugh. Laughter is the release of joy as tears are the release of sorrow. It should be noted uh, that both the satisfaction of the hunger and those who weep, it's a passive because it's indicating God is the cause of this. How are you going to be satisfied? Through the Lord. How will you no longer mourn? Through the Lord. It is he who does these things. And then he gives us one more blessed. He says, blessed are those when people hate you. Isaiah 66, those who hate you and exclude you for my name's sake, I will honor, I will bless. 1 Peter 4, think about 1 Peter 4. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory, which is the spirit of God, is resting on you. The blessing comes from 
the opportunity to identify with the Lord. And you see in these four blesseds, there's the opportunity to depend on him, an opportunity to see God exalt his name, and an opportunity to serve in all of the four blessings. And so Jesus states here in verse 23, and it's the only command in these beatitudes, rejoice. Rejoice. And, and that term is loaded because we've seen it throughout uh, already in our journey of Luke. We'll see it. I mean, Luke's gospel begins with joy. It ends with joy. In fact, he says, rejoice, and because your reward is great in heaven, you're going to jump for joy. I remind you of John the Baptist in Elizabeth's womb. says that he, he leaps uh, for joy in the presence of Christ. It brings ideas of Malachi, this, what th those who are righteous will do in the end times. We jump for joy. We rejoice. Why? Notice what he states. We rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. The first of these is there's a promise to have a heavenly reward. If you've got the notes, you've got that listed there. And, and, and notice what this means, what he says here about this promise. It, first, the promise directs our attention to, from our present trials and encourages us to focus on the end goal, doesn't it? It's the first thing we say. Secondly, the promise is certain. You don't need to worry. Oh, will this really take place? that's something this world can never assure. It's something that is certain, other than maybe taxes. <laughs> the promise is significant and far greater than anything the world could afford. And finally, the promise is kept securely by the Lord and will be obtained in his presence. What good news for those who are poor, who are hungry, who are hated, who mourn. And so he says, first of all, you need to rejoice because you have a great promise. Secondly, he states, and this I find interesting. Notice what he, he mentions here in verse 23. For their ancestors did the same thing to the prophets. Why is that a comfort? <laughs> Why should I rejoice that I am seen with those that have gone before us? But think about the prophets of old. They were persecuted just like those who follow Jesus will be. And yet they walked with God. They were used by God. They were blessed by God. And ultimately they were rewarded by God. Hebrews chapter 11, you know the hall of faith. And you have this laundry list of men who have stood fast in the faith. It's interesting when you compare that list you find that despite the injustices that those individuals faced, the disappointments, the pain, and at times even death, those individuals were able to obtain the promise that the sovereign Lord was graciously overseeing. And that's the idea here, is that by us looking to those in the past and, and, and those that are, have gone before us, we find comfort, we find assurance in the things of the Lord. The first reason that he gives for why we should rejoice, notice it's future-based, isn't it? Heaven that awaits. The second reason we need to rejoice is in the past. I wrote, when we are identified with those who God used mightily in the past, and look to a confident hope of worship of our Lord with those who have gone before us, then we can face the difficulties of the present, can't we? Hmm. Those who have gone before us, 
and those that await us should bring great rejoicing, even in the midst of the trials. And that's what Luke's trying to stress. And so to the, his disciples, he says, ah, you need to rejoice. This is great. But, and you can't help but wonder if he's not directing this to the religious rulers that are standing there. Woe to you. And he gives us several of these. First of all, he says, woe to you who are rich. And of course, the idea here is that these individuals who have tons of money, wealth, the idea is not that they are, the issue is not the presence of money. Let me be careful here. Because as we know, Paul states, it's not the, the uh, presence of money, it's, it's the love of money. The idea is that in their self-sufficiency, they have it all together and they can lord it. And he says, for you have received your comfort already. They don't have a need. So why do they look to the Lord? Secondly, he says, woe to you who are well satisfied. The same idea here. You're stuffing your face and you're missing those around you. You suffer from the Maria Antoinette syndrome, right? Uh, you, 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 you fail to see the needs of those around you. Again, think of these religious rulers. He says also, woe to you who are condescending. You, you, you go before you, the reference to laughter. This idea, <laughs> you gloat. You think you have it all made and the callous attitude is missed. It's hard to care for those when lining our pockets idea here. And so to the rich, to those who are satisfied, those who are laughing, and then finally says to those when all people speak well of you, to those who seek affirmation, public acceptance. And, and throughout Israel's history, the problem with the false prophets is they were too concerned about what their fellow man thought, right? Versus what God thought. It's hard to be concerned with the Lord when you're seeking the world's accolades. And so these woes, these exclamations of pain addressed believers who are precisely opposite to the four blessings. These sorrows emphasize that the world's values are not the Lord's values. Well, you say, Hoffman, it's so what? what? How does that relate to me? You know, how do I apply this? Well, there's some points there in your notes. The first of these is we need to be careful not to be enticed by the things of the world. The danger of the indifference of the wealthy, the self-sufficiency of those in power, and the compromising stand of the popular result in the forfeiture of the Lord's blessing. And think about this. Do we really live as if this is not our home? A couple years ago, I had the opportunity to attend a memorial service in Israel. It was powerful. And, and it certainly was very moving as they showed all these pictures of individuals who had died for the liberation of Israel. But I wasn't a Roman, or a Roman, I wasn't Israeli citizen. So I, I didn't salute the flag. I, I didn't sing in their songs. It was very moving. I was glad to be a part of it. But I was American. And I'm very proud to be an American. I'm very thankful for our amazing country and all that it has given us. But ultimately... My citizenship is in heaven. 
Thus, as a believer, I shouldn't be joining in the ills of our culture, just as I didn't join in the national anthem of Israel, or bowing before the gods of our age. We need to be Christians willing to take a knee for biblical convictions, if I could argue. I'm not referring to the disrespect shown during the singing of the national anthem. That's not what I'm saying. But I am talking about glorifying the Lord in the workplace, in our schools, and in the public square. As citizens of heaven, we must not conform, but stand fast in the midst of all the crud in this world, right? Are we focused on our eternal home? To the blessed, notice what he states, blessed are you who, who look to the end and, and, and rejoice because your reward awaits. It's, it's Paul saying, I, I press towards the mark, the crown that awaits. And so, I, three warnings, three landmines I think are very clear. We need to be careful with immediate satisfaction. I mean, look to the problems that occurred because Abraham couldn't wait and he had relationship with Hagar. Ask David who was impatient on waiting on the Lord and got to know Bathsheba. Rather, we are called to value patience and wait on the Lord as seen, I think, in the lives of Joseph, or Job, or Lazarus. Not only to be careful with immediate satisfaction, we need to be careful with peace and comfort. Jesus stated, you're going to suffer. There are those who are going to assault you because of my name, right? We see that in the text. And we need to be careful finding the, the path of least resistance. Ask the Israelites, who longed to return to Egypt and the destruction that led for them. Rather, I think we need to look to people like Daniel or Anna in the temple. And finally, we need to be careful with prestige and power. Again, we only need to look to characters such as Absalom or Demas, who saw something far more attractive in this world and were willing to chuck it all. Instead, we need to look to people like Deborah or the Apostle Paul. How do we know if we're being lured or enticed by the things of the world? I mean, it's easy, right? How, how are we caught up in this world and if we've missed the end game? I think an easy solution is to do a little inventory, a little assessment. As a professor, we were required to do assessments. I hated them. The students hate them, but so do the faculty, trust me. Uh, it's a pain to spend all that time and energy. And yet, an audit's good. It, that, it, it's good to ask the tough questions. It's good to say, okay, where, where am I falling short? And I think we could do a spiritual audit. What consumes your time, your thoughts, your pocketbook? Perhaps you need to find someone who can be very honest and blunt with you and say, you know, you, you, you talk a lot about money or I'm not seeing the spiritual fervor that, that needs to be there. The Lord says, blessed are those who are passionate about me, who are gonna follow after me, but woe to those who are satisfied with the things of this world, who are entrapped and enticed by them. Richard Baxter, in his book, Saints Everlasting Rest, this Puritan, it's a long quote, and I've asked our team to, to show this on the screen, but I want to read it to you, but uh, for you aud auditory learners, 
or uh, you visual learners, you can read it. Uh, auditory, just sit back and listen. Oh, the hourly dangers that we walk in. Every sense and member is a snare. Every creature, every mercy, and every duty is a snare to us. We can scarce open our eyes, but we are in danger of envying those above us or despising those below us, of coveting the honors and riches of some or beholding the rags and beggary of others with pride and unmercifulness. If we see beauty, it is a bait to lust, if deformity to loathing and disdain. How soon do slanderous reports, vain jest, wanton speeches creep into the heart? How constant and strong a watch does our appetite require? Have we the comeliness and beauty? What fuel for pride? Are we deformed when an occasion of repining? Have we strength of reason and guilts of learning? Oh, how prone to be puffed up, hunt after applause, and despise our brethren. Are we unlearned? How apt then to despise what we have not. Are we in places of authority? How strong is the temptation to abuse our trust, make our will our law, and mold all the enjoyments of others by the rules and model of our own interest and policy? Are we inferiors? How prone to envy others, preeminence, and bring their actions to the bar of our own judgment. Are we rich and not too much exalted? Are we poor and not too discontented? Are we not lazy in our duties or make a Christ of them? Not that God hath made these things our snares, but through our own corruption they become so to us. Ourselves are the greatest snares to ourselves. It's a long quote, but it's very profound. And I think that's, that's the whole point. That's why, yes, these are beautiful words, the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, but the bottom line is there's a real difficulty here to live out the spiritual life, to recognize that this world and all its beauty still has great entrapment. And it's easy to put those things before the Lord. And again, look at the Pharisees standing there. They had it all together, humanly speaking. They knew their theology and yet they had missed the point of who this Jesus is and what he demands from us. And second point in your notes, our world, and similar to what we've just stated, but our world should be viewed through eternal lenses. Those who abuse wealth, power, and fame for their own benefit may have much now, but they will have nothing in eternity. 2 Timothy 4, as for me, Paul states, I'm already being poured out as a libation and the time of my departure has come. In other words, he's about to die. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. From now on, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And don't miss the last line. And not only to me, but also to all those who long for his appearing. Isn't that great? And, and our world should be viewed from those eternal. Seek first the kingdom of God, to quote from the Sermon on the Mount. We can't take anything with us, but boy, do we live like we could. <laughs> a hearse does not come with a trailer hitch or a coffin with a cargo rack. You won't see them. Sorry. Do we really live as the, if this is not our home? We at CBF are so blessed to have a group of elders and a building committee that are spending tons of time and energy in exploring a new or home for us as a church. Countless hours have been given and eventually 
we will need to secure an architect and a builder. And it's, it's a bit of a daunting, daunting process, but it's exciting. But it requires a lot of time, energy, and effort for our new home. We also have a home. Oh yes, it's already being prepared for you. Jesus stated that. I go to prepare a place for you. But are we devoting our time, our efforts, and energy in preparation for this place? Are we looking to the end? Our world should be viewed through eternal lenses. And finally, in your notes, no one promised that following Jesus was going to be easy <laughs> or without pain, suffering, and disappointment. You say, thanks, Hoffaditz. <laughs> it's true. What is assured by Jesus himself is that those who follow him will be blessed. And I love it. Only look to the prophets of old. Look how God used them mightily. And we get to be identified with those people that went before us. Jesus stated, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Howard Hendricks used to say, if you want an effective ministry, it has a very high price tag. Wasn't sure what he meant at that time. I do now. It does cost a lot. But might I add, and it's worth every penny. Stephen Lawson, it's a quote there in your notes, states, a life of resolve comes with a price tag. You will be tested by the lure of the world, but you must turn a deaf ear to the crowd and live instead for the approval of Christ. There will always be a cross before a crown, a sacrifice before success, and a reproach before reward. The call of discipleship will cost you popularity, possessions, and position. And many in this room can testify to that. But God will use your commitment. The grace of God will be multiplied in you if you cultivate a fixed resolution to live for the glory of God. And so, this morning, which category will you choose? Will you follow after Christ and be blessed? Or will you cling to the things of this world and look to self and thus find yourself ultimately under God's judgment, declaring, woe is me. Father, this is a heavy text. You read the Sermon on the Mount, and on one level, it's, it's, it is beautiful. It's glorious. On another level, it is very profound. Because what the Lord is laying out is a standard for those who have a transformed heart. And that is our desire. Lord, the promises both in the present and the future found in the blesseds is what we want to cling to. Lord, we need, it's a spirit of poverty, a spirit of hunger that we need to cling to. One of dependence on you. Mourning, understanding our own depravity. And understanding as well that we will be hated because we have followed after you. But in the midst of it, we rejoice. <laughs> we are so grateful. Thank you for your coming to earth. 
thank you for sending your son and allowing us to have a restored relationship with you. But as Paul highlighted, that righteousness that comes because of Christ's death on the cross. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus.